Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. This time we're talking to Tom Holland, a man who started out writing vampire novels and became the man who made the classical world sexy. After books like Rubicon, Persian Fire and The Shadow of the Sword, he's become one of the country's best-known historians, we're going to talk a bit about history, but also about morality, since his most recent book, Dominion, attempts to identify the origins and expressions of Western thought and the significance of belief. Inevitably, he ends up most concerned with Christianity and what it's done to and for us. Tom Holland, hello. You share something with our Prime Minister, a belief in the importance of teaching Greek and Latin to children. Why? I think it's very interesting that um, Boris Johnson, unlike almost every other prime minister for many, many years, genuinely seems committed to the idea that Greece and Rome provide models for behaviour, um, exemplars to follow. Uh, and I think that that is something that he was uh, raised in. I think he's emotionally committed to it. I think he's intellectually committed to that idea. I, I have to say that I'm not um, the, the reason for my fascination with Greece and Rome is um, that I found them glamorous and exciting and fierce and frightening. Um, and it was a kind of childhood obsession that kind of moved seamlessly on from my fascination with dinosaurs. I never particularly regarded Caesar or Leonidas as moral exemplars. Um, and in a way, the work that I've done over the past two decades really, has been a process of kind of probing at that. Why do I find them so fascinating? But at the same time, why do I find them so unsettling? And what is the cause of that tension? And I guess that, that is why I've ended up becoming interested, rather to my surprise, in the great cuckoo in the Greco-Roman nest, which is Christianity. Do you come to the conclusion from looking at all these civilizations? it doesn't matter whether it's Athens or Rome, the Persian Empire, don't you feel there's a sort of vanity to human ambition? Well, I think that, that there are um, 
certain civilizations that, that, that have put a kind of premium on vanity. Um, so I, I think that Imperial Rome, you know, the, 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 the idea that um, greatness was something to be valued and celebrated was fairly fundamental to the, the, the DNA of, of Roman civilization. What happened over the course of Roman civilization was that um, the idea that the yearning to be great, to do great things, under the republican system of government, that had to be subordinated to the good of the citizenry as a whole. What happened when the republic collapsed in the lifetime of, of Caesar, Crassus, Pompey, kind of apex predators like that, was that, in a sense, the, the frameworks that um, had, had acted as restraints on, on this kind of predatory behaviour collapsed. And there were essentially no limits. And it's out of that kind of carnivorous um, battle to become best that uh, Julius Caesar's great-nephew, um, the, uh, the, the man who takes on the name Augustus, emerges. And he reconstitutes a new political system in which the emperor stands at the apex. But again, it's, it's interesting that even then, the, the, the emperor serves as the guardian of the good of the people. So it's never entirely kind of jettisoned. Um, and if you look at other civilizations, even so, so, so Egypt, I guess, is the one that, that would come most readily to mind. The, the idea of there being a, a single great figure who acts as, as, as the kind of the focus of that civilization. Even there, the, the, the pharaoh exists as the guarantor of order. And without that, his own reign, his own dynastic future comes under threat. So I think that there is, of course, there is vanity but that vanity is only put up with by, by, by people if they feel that the vanity offers them something. If, you know, be it the status as, as, a, as a god, as, as an imperator, as someone who can uphold it. Without that, all of human vanity collapses. This latest book of yours is incredibly ambitious. It's about the making of the Western mind. Why has it been published in the States with an emphasis on the word Christian? <laughs> well, it's a very good question. Uh, and I think that the um, the American subtitle, which is, I think, how um, the Christian revolution changed the world or something to that, is, is actually a more accurate description of what the book is about. Um, the, um, my, my, my British editor, who I, I love and respect very much, um, although he, he, he commissioned the book, was anxious that it not seem too overtly Christian because he, he very much felt that, um, you know, too obvious a, a presence of Christianity, either in the illustration or in the subtitle, would have the potential to alienate readers. So the, 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 the British title, not only is there no mention of Christianity in the title or the subtitle, but there's, there's virtually no allusion to Christianity at all on the cover. I think there's a kind of, on, on the hardback, there was a single cross discreetly hidden away in one of the O's. Whereas in the American one, Christianity's all over it to the extent that you've got Dali's famous painting of, um, of Christ on the cross on the cover. And I think that that reflects um, uh, a sense that, that Christianity is felt to be a more vital cultural presence in the United States. Whereas here, um, people feel that it's kind of faded into the background. Uh, and in a sense, that, that's what made me interested in writing on the topic was actually the very strong feeling I've come to that just because 
um, a society like ours may feel that Christianity has, has faded and ebbed and vanished, it hasn't at all. Um, it's, it's around us all the time. But Christianity presupposes the existence of God and that Jesus was the son of God, doesn't it? You don't believe that. Well, that's, an, that's, a, that's a different question. The question of what I personally believe does not come into the book um, except at the very end where I do interrogate my own beliefs and my own values. Because, of course, um, if I'm arguing that essentially everyone in the West is um, influenced and determined by the inheritance of Christianity, then that includes me. I can't stand outside it. I can't take a neutral position. And so it was incumbent on me, I thought, both at the beginning of the book and at the end, to talk about where I personally stand. And I think the, the conclusion that I came to was that lots of things that I believe in, human rights, um, the essential equality of human beings, that these are theologically based. And, you know, something like human rights has, as far as I'm concerned, no objective reality at all. People talk about human rights existing. I mean, they no more exist than angels do. Um, and so in a sense, I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that um, to have values does require belief. Um, you may believe uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. You may believe that human rights exist and that all human beings have value. But if you but but these are beliefs, they have no objective value. They're culturally contingent. They're bred of specific cultural assumptions. But you cite among your examples the abolition of sati, the burning of widows in India during the British regime there. That's an example of imperialism, isn't it? The British very happily burned their own bishops a few centuries earlier. Well, they weren't burning bishops by the, um, by the early 19th century when they abolished sati. But uh, you're absolutely right to, to fix on the kind of the faint whiff of hypocrisy, which um, I think by its very nature hangs over every Christian um, uh, expedition. And one of the problems that, that Christianity has, historically had, in a sense, is its very success. Because um, Christianity has at its heart the image of um, a man suffering the death of a slave on an implement of torture and he's been nailed to this implement of torture by soldiers serving the greatest power on the face of the planet. And so there is this subversive hint, I mean it's more than a hint, it's kind of fundamental to Christianity, that um, something that served as, as a symbol of imperial power has become a symbol of the opposite. It's become a symbol of the uh, the, the ability of the weak to overcome the strong, of the slave to overcome the master, of the oppressed to overcome the oppressor. And that is something that has run through throughout Christian culture. However, Christianity has become so successful, it's established itself probably as the most successful hegemonic way of explaining what it is to be human that, 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 that any culture has, has, has ever come up with. To the degree that there are many people bred of Christian um, cultures, Christian backgrounds, who now feel uncomfortable with Christianity's very success. And I think that that is a large part of what we've seen in the West recently, is that hostility to, towards Christianity, I think particularly from, from the part of people on the left, is an expression of anxiety about Christianity's success. But it comes from very, very Christian wellsprings. 
And that's a kind of typical of, 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 of the multitude of paradoxes that snarl their way through the entire history of Christianity, that people can doubt Christianity and by doing so, do it for profoundly Christian reasons. But isn't another consequence of the Christian mode of thought this belief in science? And that, of course, is the one thing that in the end is antithetical to Christian belief. Well, I, I'm not sure it is. Um, the, the, there's a kind of notion, which I have to say that I, I, I subscribe to as well, um, that there are categories like religion and science are unproblematic. Um, and the idea that's very popular with um, atheists uh, and has been since the 19th century, that something called religion and something called science has been locked in um, permanent conflict and that this goes all the way back to I don't know, the burning of the Library of Alexandria or the murder of Hypatia or the condemnation of Galileo, all these kind of... The, the, these are, are myths. Um, the category of religion, again, is a very culturally distinctive one that emerges over the course of Christian history and takes on the kind of the signification that it's come to have really not until the 18th century in English. Science is a word that is really only um, coined in the 19th century. But it does express... Um, a way of seeing the world that I think derives from very specifically Christian assumptions. Um, and, and essentially it, it derives from the fact that Christianity kind of gives you, if you're a thinker, two perspectives. One is the idea that um, the entire universe can be comprehended as a single entity. So you don't have um, nymphs in springs or in trees that explain what's going on. There is, there is a kind of single authority that explains what's going on. Um, and uh, Christianity extrapolates this up from the land. It desacralizes the landscape and it places this kind of mover up in the skies, up in the heavens. The other thing Christianity provides is an understanding that this deity has structured things according to laws and this deity has himself submitted to laws so firstly when he has his covenant with uh, the children of Israel when he gives the various commandments to Moses he is entering into a covenant he is is signing up to an agreement traditionally in um, in, in 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 the bronze age um, rival powers would would sign a covenant and have it witnessed by the gods the 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 Old Testament offers something very odd. It offers a God himself entering a covenant. So he's binding himself with a law. And then with the crucifixion, even though it's never entirely clear quite what, what's going on there, why Christ has to die, there is this kind of lurking sense again that, that some expiation has to be paid, some legal satisfaction has to be made. So again, you have this idea that um, the one creator God has bound himself to become human, to suffer this death, because there is some vague legal requirement for it. So scholars in the Middle Ages, when they're trying to make sense of the vastness of the cosmos that has been created by this one God, can legitimately say, well, if we want to understand this creation, it is worth working out what the laws are that this God has uh, laid down that explain why and how the cosmos functions. That's not to say that, that, that God can't at some point you know, intrude, he can't introduce miracles or whatever, but by and large, this is a God who lays down rules and accepts rules. So it makes sense when we want to understand the universe to try and work out what those rules are. And over the course of the centuries, 
This evolves to become what by the 19th century has been recognised as science. But I, so I think the, the, the idea that um, religion and science are definite entities that have always existed, that have always been locked in, in, in conflict, is, is deeply erroneous and is an example of the way in which modern secularism, atheism, scientism, whatever you want to call it, has itself constructed myths that are, are just as potent as the Christian ones. And indeed, I, I would argue, derive from Christian ones, because essentially the, the, all these kind of... Um, the, these myths, Galileo and so on, they don't originally derive from atheists, they derive from Protestants. And I think there's a case for saying that, particularly in, in the English-speaking world, polemically anti-religious atheism or humanism is essentially Protestantism without God. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tom, you've just talked about the Old Testament. You have examples in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a myth, isn't it? Well, the Old Testament is, uh, you know, and, and, and it's, Christian, it's a Christian phrase. Of course, the Jews don't call that. They don't have a New Testament. But, but for, 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 for in, in, in the Christian world, um, the Old Testament is a, a collection. You know, Biblia, the word from which we get Bible, is, is originally a Greek plural word. It means many books. So there are many different kinds of books. There are clearly mythical books. Um, the openings of Genesis would, would, would be obvious. There are, I think, books that are, are clearly history. They reflect historical reality. There are books of law. There are books of poetry. Um, there are books of wisdom. There are all kinds of different things. And it's the, it's the totality of those that make it the testament. Now, <laughs> whether you're willing to accept that this is a testament 
that reflects um, a, a divine reality or not, you know, you need the leap of faith to, 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 to accept that. But I think the fact that something is a myth doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true. Um, myths generate their own truth, their own, um, that's the potency of myth again and again. Uh, and, and at the end of the book, I quote Tolkien, who of course, um, very successfully creates his own mythology, but did so as a very devout Catholic. And he says that, 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 that a myth can be true. And that is a perspective that I think most Christians would have accepted over the course of the 2000 years. They wouldn't have put it in that way, but they would have accepted that there is a kind of reality that, transcend, that transcends the seemingly objective reality that we as humans inhabit. When you think about the influence that Christianity has had on Western thought, you've cited human rights. Are you saying when it boils down to it, the NHS is a Christian institution? I, I, I suspect that without, um, had, had the Roman Empire not converted to Christianity, and this is a, a kind of quite a long thread, <laughs> I, I doubt we'd have the NHS in the form that we have it. Um, the, the NHS is, is founded on the principle that... Um, Care, you know, compassion is something that every human being has a right to have. Um, and this back in the um, before Constantine, before the Roman Empire converts, is, is, is pretty much the unique selling point of Christianity. This is what uh, Christianity offers to people, is the assurance that if they become members of the church, then there will be people who, who do care for them when they are sick, who do um, feed them when they're hungry, who do visit them when they're in jail. And more than that, they will do this to people who may not even be Christians. And this, of course, is in incredibly effective in a world where, by and large, the, the, the wealthy had, had taken for granted that the, the poor and the oppressed, um, you know, they don't owe them anything at all. Um, and in the context of the pandemic we've been going through at the moment, I think what's interesting is that in the in the third century, the Roman Empire gets convulsed by terrible epidemics. I mean, it's kind of the worst one is is a kind of a form of Ebola um, that, that seems to have been lethally infectious and raised for, for, for 20 years. And the spectacle of Christians working to save not just Christians, but 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 everybody over this seems when the, 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 the pandemic burnt away to have massively, massively raised the profile of the church. And when in due course Constantine converts um, and Christianity becomes the, the, the prestige uh, ideology of the wealthy, so then you start to get very, very wealthy Romans who previously had invested their money in flamboyant arches or gladiatorial shows or whatever, starting to invest their money in radical new institutions called hospitals. And these hospitals then become part of the inheritance to Latin Christendom from the Roman world, um, pass away through the Middle Ages. Uh, hospitals are, are, are run by people who overtly see themselves as fulfilling Christ's mission. And this is something that lasts right the way in, in Britain, right the way up until the nationalisation in, in, um, uh, after the Second World War. Basically, what happens is that the state nationalises many of the functions that the church had previously exercised in education as well. And I think that that's one of the major reasons why the hold of, of the church um, on, on uh, people's affections in this country has faded. We, ha we now have an alternative of people talk about the NHS as a religion, as Britain's religion. I think there's actually quite a lot of, of justification in that. I think it does, you know, there is a kind of religious quality to it.
But in the end, going back to Christianity, isn't that core Christian belief simply the golden rule that underpins many religions? Well, you say religions. I mean, I, 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 say, I, think, I think the idea of there being things called religions that um, can be kind of studied uh, separately from, from the, 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 the flux of everything else that may exist in a society is itself a kind of um, a, a, a Christian idea, which in turn shows how distinctive, I think, Christianity is in the way that it kind of has constructed models of reality, models of understanding that, that, that by and large people in the West now take completely for granted. Does Christianity simply teach things that everybody else takes for granted? I, I don't think so. I think that there are, there are two um, aspects of it in particular that I think have been distinctive and influential and which most people in the West would continue to um, uphold. One of them is the understanding that Christians inherited from Hebrew scripture and specifically from the book of Genesis, the idea that um, every man and woman was created equally in the image of God, because that serves to give to human beings an incredible dignity. That is not the kind of um, that's not the kind of presumption that you get in other mythological systems. In the, in the Mesopotamian one, for instance, humans are created quite specifically to, to, to serve as slaves to the gods, to, do, to build them the temples. Um, that's not why humans are created in, in, in Genesis. They're created in the image of God and they have a dignity that results from that. Um, and it's one that Christianity then, in, in, say, in Paul famously says um, that in Christ there is no man or woman, there is no... A Greek or Jew, there is no slave or free. There's a kind of idea there, implicit perhaps, but 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 incredibly potent in its long-term implications, that if all human beings are created equally in the image of God, then all have an equal dignity. And Christianity has always had that at its core. The other aspect um, of Christianity that I think, particularly in the context of the Greek and the Roman world, that's very radical, is the idea that I talked about earlier, that that because Christ dies the death of a slave. Therefore, perhaps there is um, a greater value in being a slave than there is in being a master, that there is a kind of dignity in, in, in being oppressed that uh, the oppressor does not have. Um, that, and certainly um, the idea that the strong have a duty of care to the weak is, has always been very fundamental to Christianity. So I think that those two ideas have... They're so distinctive and yet they're so fundamental to the way that most people think in the West now that perhaps we don't recognise how distinctive they are. And the, the, the way in which perhaps we can best recognise how distinctive they are is to look at the one regime that, that's existed um, in Europe, in Christendom, um, that has, has consciously set itself not just against kind of institutional Christianity, but against those Christian ideals. And those are the Nazis, the fascists. The fascists look, you know, as the name implies, the fascists are the, 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 the rods that the guards of the consuls wore in ancient Rome. Um, the fascists wanted to go back to a pre-Christian world. They worshipped strength. They worshipped power. And Hitler in particular absolutely scorned any notion that there was value in being a slave. And he absolutely scorned the Pauline idea that there is no Jew or Greek. I mean, he, he saw the differences between Jew and Greek as being absolutely fundamental to everything that he wanted to achieve. And I think that um, because Nazism failed, um, in a sense, it, again, it kind of served to replace um, 
overt Christian doctrine because the shock of it was so great on um, essentially a Christianized people in, in, in Europe, in, in America, in the West generally, that we really no longer really needed to ask what would Jesus do. Instead, now we ask what would Hitler do and we do the opposite. But the reason that we ask that, the reason that we find Hitler you know, a literally diabolical figure is because our understanding of what in, is right and wrong is so marinated in Christian assumptions. We very rarely stop to think, well, what was so wrong about what the Nazis did? That's kind of the ultimate heresy. How do you explain the fact that Horst Wessel, that great Nazi hero, was, as you put it in your book, the son of a pastor? I think that... Um, I think that, that one of the um, issues with uh, Protestantism and perhaps p particularly Lutheranism is that um, by casting the Catholic world, the Roman church, as a sump of, of superstition and idolatry, just as, as Catholic Christians themselves had cast paganism as something very similar, um, one, one of the consequences of that was to um, bleed uh, institutional Christianity of colour and drama and excitement and um, I think that one of the things that both Hitler and Goebbels were both very alert to was the power of ritual that they'd both experienced in the Catholic Church and I think that um, that Horst Wessel um, like many Nazis uh, responded to the sense of drama that the Nazis were able to do by fusing the kind of spectacle that uh, the Protestantism had turned its back on with the kind of the drama and the excitement and the flamboyance of paganism. So in Dominion, I cite this kind of um, extraordinary thing that um, an American uh, motoring around Germany before the war, he, he turned up, I think, in um, uh, Cologne, was it perhaps? Um, and he, there's a Roman amphitheatre and he sees, uh, no, Trier, and he's, he sees, um, after Vessel has died, he sees a local girl celebrating a kind of a worship of Vessel as a god in the Roman amphitheatre. Um, and that, of course, is, 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 is giving people the sense of, of um, identification with gods that had, had gone um, hundreds of, you know, with, with the Roman period. Um, the Nazis literally wanted to turn the clock back and give people back that sense of identification with the pre-Christian mm -hmm. gods. When you hear prominent atheists saying effectively God is dead, what do you think? I, th I think that they're the log I think that they're the logical endpoint of trends within Christianity. Um, I, I think that um, in in a way, I think Richard Dawkins is is a far more evangelical figure than Justin Welby. Uh, certainly, much more he seems much more confident in asserting his his beliefs and trying to force them on people. I think because he he. Um, he feels that um, the spirit of enlightenment has descended upon him. And it's that sense that the spirit of enlightenment can descend upon you that, that, that betrays how deeply Christian he is. Because that's a very Protestant idea. The idea that um, the spirit of God descends on you, it opens up your heart, it enables you to see what is true, it enables you to, um, to become enlightened. But all of these ideas exist in the context of, of not just centuries, but, but millennia of, of uh, Christian and pre-Christian 
um, scripture. So the, origin, the, the origins of this are basically the, the Hebrew prophets who condemn the idols worshipped by the Egyptians or the Babylonians as stock and stone. Um, they, they condemn it as superstition. You know, the idea of bringing people who walk in darkness into light, that's, you know, that's in Isaiah. And all of this is inherited by, by Christians when missionaries in the, the early Middle Ages are going into the dripping forests of Saxony. They, are, they see themselves as bringing light into darkness. They, see, they, they literally chop down idols. They chop down the trees of Thor and so on. With the Protestant Reformation, you get the same thing but turned against the Roman church. Idols are smashed. Superstition has to be scoured. Enlightenment has to be embraced. The Spirit of God has to illumine the heart. What happens with the Enlightenment is simply that these ideas get turned against Christianity itself. So Dawkins' fulminations against Christianity are themselves deeply Christian. And that's the great kind of paradox of it, that in a sense, he represents a logical endpoint. I mean, he's a, he's a deeply, deeply Christian figure, I think. Have you debated with him at all? Uh, not with him. I, I have had a debate with A.C. Grayling about whether humanism is just um, Christianity light. Um, so that, that was <laughs> that was robust exchange of views. But I, I, I hope that I managed to hold my corner. What do you say when I say to you on behalf of the woke community that your position, your prejudices, your ideas about the world are products of a privileged white male existence? Well, well of course, um, we, we are all the product of our um, cultural circumstances. Um, and I think that that is uh, no less true of social justice warriors than it is of anyone else. Um, I, I mean, it seems to me that um, the, why does the idea that black lives matter, um, the idea that um, women shouldn't be sexually harassed, what's fascinating about both those is that so many people are ready to accept them at face value. Um, the idea that um, a group of people who historically have suffered oppression thereby have the right to um, claim redemption from that oppression does not seem to me an obvious one at all. And if you look at the, um, the history of it, the Black Lives Matter, the roots of it clearly lie in the, the 50s, the 60s, the civil rights movement, which was led by the Reverend Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King, in turn, was drawing on all kinds of tropes that, go, that, that are part of the central fabric of American and ultimately English Protestantism. The idea that um, God redeemed his chosen people from slavery in Egypt and gave them a promised land. The idea that he loved slaves, he didn't love the slave drivers. Um, the idea that um, all human beings are created equally, that if there is no Jew or Greek, then there is no black or white. And what Martin Luther King was doing was summoning white American Protestants, not just to recognise their privilege, but to recognise that they were all equal, that they were all one. And... Those ideals are still absolutely manifest. I'd say in many ways they've kind of um, explosively so. The idea that, that, that to be oppressed, to be subordinate, to be intersectional, if you want to use the kind of the, the, the cutting edge word, thereby gives you a, a kind of privilege over the privileged. This is a very kind of radically Christian idea, and it's not an obvious one at all. And I think the, the manifestation of that is that um, 
it's not the kind of thing you are seeing in China. You are not seeing um, in China anything comparable to this, say, with regard to the Uyghurs. Nobody in China seems to care about that at all. Um, it seems to be exclusively a Western and perhaps specifically an Anglo-American phenomenon. And I think is, is, is expressive of trends within Anglo-American Protestantism that go back not just decades, but centuries. I want to ask you one final thing before we go, Tom. What is that sword in the corner over your shoulder? Um, that's a, a gift from my brother who um, runs, a, a, I, think, I think you've come to it perhaps, the Chalk Valley History Festival uh, in the village where we both grew up. Um, and he's a particular enthusiast for living history, which means that you don't just get um, writers to come down and talk their books. You also kind of get people demonstrating how to fire a long bow or shoot a First World War machine gun, that kind of thing. So um, we, went, <laughs> we, went, we went to a living history um, kind of um, big show in a great tent. Um, and there were people flogging all kinds of uh, historical wear. And unbeknown to me, he, um, he bought me this uh, Norman Longsword, which is now lying there, um, ready for when uh, the country goes up into social anarchy. I will be prepped and ready. And now I hear you've written an opera about Cleopatra. We have. Um, it's a kind of um, operatic Mamma Mia, because um, I've got t two friends who are, who are great musicians, and we wanted to do a musical about Nero, um, and we suddenly thought oh, we could, you know, draw on Monteverdi, his, his opera about Papea and Nero. And then we said, oh, why not? It's out of copyright. And then we kind of sat down and barnstormed and thought of all those, um, all those classic arias from the 19th century that are out of copyright as well. Um, and uh, on the Roman theme, we thought that um, uh, Cleopatra is um, uh, the, possibly the kind of the, the, the great romantic um, operatic story that's never been properly told. So we've written this this opera, which consists entirely of famous arias all woven together, um, and uh, we showcased it at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, we were we were just about, I think, to 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 get a commission for it, and then um, we got COVIDed. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that perhaps um, it, it may yet see the light when and if um, we emerge from this pandemic. <laughs> There you are, Tom Holland, a man with a serious brain who's not afraid to use it. Next week, I'm talking to Andrew Doyle, who's not at all famous, but who created the po-faced queen of wokeness on Twitter, Titania McGrath, who is, quite. Do tune in for that. And in the meantime, as ever, stay safe. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.